Ultimately, the head coach is the mental skills coach. Their bearing on the environment is so vast because of the power dynamic that exists and the, the way that teams have grown over the last 20 or 30 years. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Pete Olushaga and this is 80% Mental, a podcast all about the psychology of sport and performance and just some other stuff that we throw in there from time to time. Uh, after taking a few weeks off, we're back to continue this third series of the podcast uh, where I'm exploring the psychology of various types and various aspects of performance. We've had actors, singers, dancers, as well as endurance athletes, strength athletes, coaches and speed demons. But one thing we haven't really considered yet this series is the psychology of the team. How do we get a group of individuals to start performing as a high-functioning team? Do we need to get along to survive? Is it all just about the job at hand? What are the factors that bring people together to work as an efficient unit? I'll be exploring all of those questions and more with today's guests who I'm really excited to have on the podcast with me. So I've got two brilliant guests to help me out today, Alex Auerbach and Cody Royal. Now, whenever I invite guests onto the podcast, I get them to write a couple of lines just so I can introduce them properly. I'm going to start with Alex. Alex, for your bio, you wrote performance psychologist. Now, this, this is factually correct, but factually sparse. So, <laughs> I mean, you, you've worked in elite sport, you've worked with Olympians, I believe you've worked with the military. Uh, Alex, can you just give us a little bit of a potted history? Tell us a little bit more about yourself for our listeners. I'm sorry for being so factually sparse there. Uh, <laughs> and I appreciate the opportunity to join you. So yes, I am a performance psychologist. Uh, for the last four years, I've been the senior director of wellness and development for the NBA's Toronto Raptors. So I've been overseeing mental health, mental performance, and what we call off-court player development for players, coaches, and staff. Uh, I've also done some work with elite military units. I did work with uh, Army Rangers and live demolition training. I've done work with para-jumpers and defusing bombs. I've worked with Fortune 500 executives and done a little bit of work with musicians and entertainers too. Well, fantastic. Well, I, I cannot wait to hear your insights onto the psychology of the team, how teams work. Um, my next guest, or second guest today, is Cody Royal. Now, on Cody's bio, Cody wrote coach of head coaches, which again is factually accurate, but I would say <laughs> we can you, you can do more. You can give us more than that, can't you? I mean, you've, you've been a coach yourself. You're a blogger turned author, a podcaster. Tell us a little about your move maybe from Australia to Canada and, and some of the work that you're doing at the moment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for the setup. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is factually correct, but I'll, I'll give you the abridged version of how I ended up coaching head coaches. Uh, yeah, Aussie rules was my sport. I got into coaching very young. I was 23, uh, moved to Canada when I was 25 and, uh, kept coaching, ended up coaching the national team here for about 10 years, the men's national program. Uh, and alongside that was writing books. I'm a writer by trade, um, and it was more so a, a journal of my coaching thoughts to get out of my own head, like an early version of, of journaling, I guess. Turned those into blogs, those turned into books. And uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called The Tough Stuff, which was about the emotional toll of head coaching. And I started getting approached after that book 
by other head coaches to say, can you help me with all these things that you've written about? So it was about, you know, identity and a uh, sense of belonging within teams and, um, you know, your, your biggest um, critic often can be yourself in a head coaching environment. It's lonely. And so I, I hadn't found anything about those topics within coaching. And so I went and wrote that book and, yeah, now uh, spend all my time coaching head coaches. I've worked with Alex and the Raptors. I worked in the WNBA. Uh, I worked at the Premier League and with Arsenal. And, um, yeah, uh, about almost uh, 16 coaches now across about eight different sports. And so I'm, <laughs> I have to learn about eight different team invasion sports. So I love this topic talking about teams because I've got about eight of them. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, again, I, I can't wait to hear what you've uh, what you've both got to say today. So, uh, uh, Alex, Cody, thank you very much for for coming on Eighty Percent Mental. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, the other thing I want to point out about Cody is that I asked guests um, because I want to pronounce people's names right. So I always have a, a I, get, I send out a form before the podcast and I get people to write their name phonetically in case it's difficult to pronounce. So Cody Royal on his form, but Royal like the Queen. That's yeah. one way to do the phonetics, Cody. Good job, man. Yeah, yeah. Just, just in case I couldn't pronounce it. But I appreciate yeah. that. Though. Well, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I've seen how much, of a, how much of a fan of the royal family you are, Pete. So I, <laughs> I thought you would like that one. That was a joke for you. <laughs> well, thanks very much. All right. All right. Let's get into it then. Um, first question. We'll, we'll start with Alex. And I, I guess really I would like to, to hear your opinion on what, what are the defining characteristics of a high-performing team? Well, that's just a giant question to open up with, and I'll, I'll try to be short and sweet. But I think the way I've broken it down in my work is really thinking about two dimensions of good teams. So the first is what we might call task cohesion. It's kind of agreement on goals, alignment about roles, and understanding what everyone's responsibilities are and how to get the job done, basically. Um, and so, of course, if you want your team to be functioning well, people have to understand what's asked of them and know how to execute. And then there's team cohesion, which is just this idea sort of that we like each other, right? That we get along well, that we understand who one another is, and we know how to get the most out of each other. And in an ideal world, you're high on both of those dimensions, right? So the athletes understand what's being asked of them. They also feel connected to one another, each of which sort of drives like supportive behavior and other effective team teamwork behaviors that we'd be looking for as psychologists in the team environment. So I think that's the framework I've used to sort of understand at a, at a foundation, you know, what makes teams successful or unsuccessful. And those often point you in directions of places you could intervene if the team is not performing as well as it could. I think you can then look to other sort of dimensions that would be important, right? So having effective leadership, I think really matters for having a high performing team, whether that leader is the coach or another athlete or some combination of the two. I think having a team that's also built around healthy players is pretty critical and becoming more and more critical for understanding high performing teams. Like if you've got, um, I guess you could use the saying, like, you're only as strong as the weakest link. So I think that's becoming, in my view, more and more important and clear in how we need to address that to get the most out of teams. So those would be the the things I'd point to as a starting point for talking about high-performing teams. So leadership is being important, but also this idea of task and social cohesion. So understanding what the task is and also just getting on with the other people in the team. What does that look like in like in practice, like have you got any examples? What, what what does task cohesion look like? What does social cohesion look like? 
Sure. Well, I, I, task cohesion, I think the, the basic way to think about it would be, do people understand the playbook and are people kind of bought into what's being asked of them? Um, and it sounds like it's kind of a given in sports, but, you know, at least in the NBA, having worked in the NFL a little bit, I can confidently tell you that regardless of what playbook you've put in place, there are always going to be times when players do not want to run the task that you've asked them to run. And so, you know, that's a, that's an important part of that high performing team is people sort of accepting and executing their role. And so, you know, to look at that as an example, right, it's the degree to which players sort of play their part and do what's asked of them, not because they're, you know, rigidly following rules or quote unquote good soldiers, but because they believe that this is actually what matters to help mm. the team perform well. And so it's not this kind of, you know, forced execution, but a willingness to kind of participate in the task in a way that allows the whole team to be successful and sort of trusting that, you know, if I do my part on these five plays, eventually something good will come to me. Um, which is often what happens if you just execute the game plan the way coaches have drawn it up. Um, and there's a reason we leave all that good tactical stuff to the head coaches. And then on the social side, you know, it, it looks again like what you'd see with your friends, right? You know, does the locker room have good energy? Do people smile, laugh, joke, talk to one another? How much infighting do you have or not have? Um, is there a degree of support when, you know, a player's not playing well or when someone gets injured? These are all sort of things you could be looking for to see how connected is this group. Um, and again, you can see it in high performing teams, you know, the kind of the dynasty teams of the last several decades, you know, whether it's the New England Patriots in the NFL or the Golden State Warriors in basketball, mm -hmm. what you see is an incredibly tight group of people, whether they all like quote unquote, like each other or not uh, is somewhat less relevant, but they do, respect each other and they are willing to go the extra mile for one another and support each other as teammates. And I think you see that then elevating what they're capable of over the course of several years um, and getting just better and better at the way they operate together. Cody, I'll bring you in here. Alex made a, a really interesting distinction just then about the difference between a group of people liking each other and a group of people respecting each other. And I think when we talk about social cohesion, we all kind of have this image of everybody getting on and, you know, going to each other's houses for barbecues and all that sort of thing. But what's your take on this? Is, is this the kind of thing that you see? Is task cohesion or social cohesion maybe more or less important than the other? What's your, what's your take? Yeah, so I've been obsessed with teams my whole life. It's why I love head coaching in particular is because mm. you have this framing of the whole team. And I, I really do look at it like that. I, I, I hate goat conversations in team sports. I, I don't like any of that. Like the, I, I'm really interested in, yeah, well, this question for starters is <laughs> what does it actually look like? And one of the things that I've observed is that when you look at dynasty teams, you know, or anyone who's created some sort of juggernaut where they're consistently competing for championships at the top level one of the things you observe behaviorally is that they seem just as likely to implode as they do to explode that's interesting so they they have this kind of this rigidness to them and and they have some characters in there that um, you wouldn't traditionally associate with uh, like social cohesion for instance like they're prickly and they're they're a bit of a, an asshole maybe on the court or on the field and, and maybe even to their teammates. Yeah. 
and, and so it's not this kind of hand-holding kumbaya environment that that people think and some of these terms kind of lead us to maybe think it is like that but then when you observe you know groups doing really difficult things and like winning after winning is so compelling because it's the hardest thing to do mm. to win and then win again in in elite sport is by far and away the toughest thing and i i, I think you you see these teams uh, and this is why the leadership part is so important that alex mentioned someone has to hold that together where you've got a, um, a chemistry amongst the team that could just as well go south as it does go north and uh, you know so that that's one part and then to, to answer your, your real question like the, the task and the, the social side of things um, I, I would agree with what Alex has raised like um, at a foundational level those have got to be in place and you want high high uh, execution on both of those. The, the other thing that I track, I have my own matrix that I use that's called like team maturity. Um, and it kind of steps through uh, like the, the evolution of a team from becoming kind of, you know, emerging and, and young and they're developing and maybe they can't grasp all of those task pieces that are required at that level or they don't quite know how to interact and it kind of goes through from developing to emerging to mature to a clinical team, right? Which is the teams that, that are competing at the top and, and what do clinical teams look like, um, both on the field and off the field. And so I think even within, within task and social, there are elements of like a life cycle of a team that need to be accounted for as well. And then there's regression at the end, right? Like you, and you start the cycle again. But that would be my piece that I would add would be there's there's a maturity of a group and it's not just age maturity that we're talking about. It's their their ability to comprehend the tasks and the, the, the social cohesion that's being asked of them to compete at that level. I love that. I love the idea that there's always somebody there who's kind of just on the edge. And I'm thinking back to some of the kind of great teams, really high-performing teams, the dynasties that you talked about, the Chicago Bulls, the Golden State Warriors, the Patriots, and like, yeah, the, the, there are always those characters who are kind of just on the edge of being absolutely insane, to use a psychological term. Um, what do what, what the best teams do do really well? You talked about that kind of the, the leadership of somebody there to kind of guide that. What, what do the best teams do really well? Well, again, I mean, that's a huge question, but you know, I, I want to see where you go with it. Yeah. Um, well, like I, I can kind of, this is what that, that little matrix that again is not, <laughs> is not informed by or underpinned by anything other than my own observations. But I, I would say that, you know, they, they like the words that I have listed out for a, a clinical team is that they're ruthless. Uh, they have ownership so that the team have actually started to own their culture and their leadership. They've taken on a lot of the responsibility from, uh, from their leaders and they kind of uh, almost self govern. And then, uh, and again, these are, these are kind of on field things, but one of the interesting things as well is that when you have a really mature team, that's quite clinical and, and, you know, playing in the top four and competing at the, the highest levels and, and reaching kind of end of knockout tournaments and all those kind of things, their problem solving changes in that uh, a, a great team 
often avoids problems as opposed to gets themselves into problems. And so they're able to manipulate the game in a way collectively where they might know either what the opposition is good at and they'll avoid that or they won't put themselves in situations that they know they can't get out of. And so they have this really heightened ability to manipulate the game within the game collectively with like one, Arigo Saki calls it like the one brain or the one mind. Mm -hmm. And all of them are thinking the same thing at the same time. And so those are the really mature teams that they've got those elements to them that they're quite cutthroat. They scare teams, you know, even when they're behind the team ahead of them is like, ah, they're, they're coming for us. You know, they've got this aura to them. Um, that they've often taken on their own ownership of their, their leadership and culture and they, they tend to avoid problems in the game. Avoiding problems off the field, <laughs> again, to go back to that kind of prickliness that they often yeah. have, maybe a little bit different, but those are some of the, the, the kind of uh, elements that I look at. And again, that's just one small portion of it. I haven't talked about the locker room or anything, but um, in terms of the actual outcomes and playing i look at those elements as pretty consistent yeah alex you're, you're kind of sitting listening to cody here what, what's your take what do you think about this yeah i i like the dimensions cody's pointing out and you know obviously i have my own like psychological frameworks for making sense of that kind of collective intelligence or the shared mental models uh, and i think i'll bring in the psychologist perspective for a minute but a couple other things i'd I'd look for or think about, and, and Cody's sort of talking about this tangentially, one would be, you know, very high standards and high expectations. Um, I think the best teams not only believe in themselves, but actually expect themselves to do well consistently, um, regardless of who they're playing or operating against. And when they show up on the field, you can kind of see that, whether that's a, you know, collective confidence or, you know, a willingness to support one another, take some constructive risks. I think those things show up in the best teams. And then the other one would be, and the more I've thought about this, like, I think this is a, a challenging dimension to get right, but, and be really curious what Cody thinks about this as a head coach, having to navigate some of this. I do think the best teams find ways to make room for both individual goals and the team goal. And I think one of the kind of myths I've been thinking a lot about in teamwork and in particularly challenges coaches deal with is this idea that you have to choose, right? You, have, you need to give yourself over to the team for the team to be as best as it can be. And I just think that cuts so deeply against natural human evolution and what it means to be a person that I, it's almost impossible. Like I can't imagine a scenario where someone could just completely give themselves over to the team without at least thinking a little bit about themselves and what they want to accomplish and what it means for them to behave in a certain way, even in the most extreme scenarios. And so rather than try to do away with that, I think the best teams, high performing teams have found a way to integrate and synthesize those things and to lean on the team goal when it's most impactful and to lean on the personal goals when it's most impactful so that you can constantly sort of play with the levers of motivation for each individual performer, but the collective group as a whole. Yeah, that's really interesting because you do hear that a lot, don't you? Especially in coaching, that coaches kind of have to give everything that I've got over to the team. When you're saying that maybe there's a bit more of a balance to be to be had there with that. Um, what what you mentioned the role of the psychologist. You know what what is the role of the psych here? My view is that the role of psychologist is really to support the head coach and moving the goals of the team forward. That's how I have done my work. Um, 
this maybe brings us down a whole other rabbit hole here as a psychologist and operating in North American sport. But, <laughs> you know, I think in, in my field, you know, there's been for a long time, and I'm sure you can relate to this, Pete, kind of a struggle to establish the role and value of a psychologist because so much of what we do is invisible, right? It's through relationships. There's not like a clear measurable outcome that you can point to. It's sort of like a feeling people have, right? I trust yeah. this person. I believe that this person can help me. But we can't say, you know, the psychologist adds four points to the scoreboard every game in a way that we can say, you know, adding a new head coach changes our overall, you know, point differential or changes how well we rank on defense. And so I think that's led to this sort of uh, prickliness, to use a Cody term here, right, around the role of a psychologist and how they can best help. And I think oftentimes we've been sort of positioned as almost like a safe space that's oppositional to the head coach or something separate from the head coach where you go to the psychologist and they hold key information that nobody else can know. And that's how they help the team, right? Is there a confidential resource that offers services to the players and has a bunch of observations that they keep hidden in a chest somewhere and don't share with everyone. And I think what that does is really undermine trust and ultimately creates like an unnecessary tension that exists between two very important members of the same team. And so my view, long-winded answer here is that my role is to support the head coach and to align my goals with the head coach's goals, which is often honestly the same thing, right? Like I got into elite sport because I also want to win. I also want to compete. I also want people to perform well. I just have a special skill set to bring to bear on the same tasks that the head coach has. And so while the head coach is responsible for technical, tactical, skill development, culture development, and team building, right? I have a skill set that can either augment that or bring that forward in a different way, or maybe help the head coach move around a specific obstacle. And so I try to align my work around supporting the head coach and what their mission is, because I think that's how you get as far as you can. And so sometimes that means you're doing work without the head coach present, but you're kind of a vehicle for exploring and understanding where might the head coach be getting stuck and what can you do to move both parties forward. Uh, it may mean observing the team differently. So Cody sharing, you know, examples of what he looks for when he's observing a team. I might look for different things like how players interact with one another when they come off the court or what pre-practice looks like. Um, or what decisions players do or don't make that suggests a degree of closeness in the game. And I know coaches look for some of those things too, but we might have different language or frameworks for how we think about that. Hmm. And so my role is to then find creative ways to surface that information for the head coach so that the head coach can use that information to drive their team forward. And I, I come from the view again, that it's, it's really the head coach's team and my role is to help elevate them in the work that they do with the group of players. And ultimately that rising tide lifts all boats. Alex and I talk a lot about this topic, so I'm glad you raised it. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I think the, because it's been such a mad scramble to get Sykes in for particularly the mental health angle with, with athletes and, and young people, um, you know, there's been a, a lot of different organizational structures but the one that i think you'll see prevail is what alex has described and i heard uh, mike gervais talk about this as well when on dan abraham's podcast actually uh maybe last year or two years ago even 
kind of his role changing from, you know, mental skills with the players and the players would approach him directly to actually coaching through Pete Carroll at the Seahawks. And so his role kind of changed. And like the coaching group, he was almost this like center of excellence for psychology and the coaching group would come through him even about a drill. Like, hey, I've got this, I've got this tech and tack element within this drill, but you mentioned this, this little psych principle before, like how do I weave this into this drill? And so they would then go and co-design that. The coach would go and deliver it and, you know, and, and they could use that as the cycle because ultimately, and I, I say this and I'm sorry if this shocks you, if you're doing a sports psych degree, the, the head coach, the head coach is the mental skills coach. Like they, they're bearing on the environment and the skill development and the culture development and the leadership development and you go down the list. They're bearing on that is so vast because yeah. of the, the power dynamic that exists and the, the way that teams um, have kind of uh, grown over the last 20 or 30 years is they have the biggest bearing on that. And so to Alex's point, I, I don't see this prevailing kind of the psyche is off to the side and they hold information that no one knows about kind of is it therapy is it mental skills is it like game development you know off in the corner that no one ever hears about that i, I don't see that uh sustaining much longer This is the 80% Mental Podcast. I'm Dr. Pete Olishaga, and I'm here with Alex Auerbach and Cody Royal, and we're talking about the psychology of the team. So far, we've talked about task cohesion and social cohesion, what brings teams together, the role of the coach and the role of the psychologist as well in helping teams mature into high-performing units. Um, just before the break, um, Cody, I think you mentioned um, the locker room. and In fact, we hadn't really talked about the locker room environment yet. Something that seems pretty popular in high-performing teams at the minute, just in sport and outside of sport, is this idea of psychological safety. Uh, and I wonder whether you could maybe explain a little bit about what psychological safety is from your perspective and why that's so important in a team environment, or if it's so important in a team environment. Yeah, uh, this, is a hot, <laughs> this is a hot topic in, in elite sport at the moment. Uh, well, like, look, I, I wouldn't be doing Dr. Edmondson justice without using her definition for it, right? So, of course, the, the belief that no one, uh, that one will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes, and the team is safe for interpersonal risk taking. Of course, of course, that is beneficial. Like, there is just <laughs> no, there is just no doubt. But, you know, again, it's, it's maybe one of these concepts that is uh, misnamed either through kind of the, the, the need within literature to kind of link it to something else or I, I don't know how the term came about, but particularly in, you know, high-functioning teams, I think the name has, has not helped it um, in terms of it, it, it generates a kind of a lack of understanding and a, it's almost become this like guarantee of, of safety and my feelings won't get hurt and that, everyone always gets to speak up and question everything and and kind of it, it so it took on a life of its own and then i was i was hearing amy talk 
recently on, uh, again, a, a friend of mine, Brian Levinson had her on his podcast and she was talking about its, its need to interact with a, a lot of different other elements, even within psychology. So they were talking about grit and she's like, you know, psych safety is about creating a learning environment, uh, but it's, it can't just be its own standalone thing. You can't just have psychological safety without a bunch of different elements within a, a culture or a locker room environment. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that the setbacks have been in terms of particularly my my cohort head coaches looking at it, being like, well, there's this uh, this term that I don't really understand that doesn't really describe anything, unfortunately. And then um, it's just saying that everyone can question everything and uh, and speak up at, at any time. But, but we have a, we have time restrictions. Uh, and so what does that mean? Like, can, so we just fill our, our week between our games with just everyone asking questions and disagreeing with everything. And it, you know, it, it took on that life, but, mm. uh, in a well-structured, uh, well-considered environment, like, of course, gathering information and allowing risk-taking and interpersonal risk-taking and the ability to, uh, say, Hey, I don't understand that concept. Like, what Alex talked about earlier, a, a, being, a player being told to run a particular play, he described an option where the player didn't want to do it. The other one that's more prevalent is the player doesn't understand what's being asked of them, but they don't have the confidence to speak up and say, I yeah. don't understand yeah. that. Particularly at the top level where <laughs> you know, you're know you playing with the best of the best, they're often intimidated even by their own teammates maybe don't really understand how they've ended up in the NBA or the NFL. Uh, they don't really love the game is another thing that, that happens. They've just been really good at it. So they kept going with it. And, and so, you know, maybe they don't study as hard because really they're not that passionate about it. And so they just don't understand how to run the play, but they won't put their hand up and say, I don't understand that for fear of any sort of retribution or, or worse being kind of shunned from the group and that, sense of belonging being taken from them and so yeah i I know i've I've gone kind of wide and far on that but it it is a a a vast question but uh, you know of course it's beneficial in in teams and i think you'll when we do this show again in a couple of years and we're talking about the the things that you know high performing teams uh execute on i think we'll be talking about task cohesion and social cohesion bolted onto psychological mm-hmm. safety. It'll be the kind of 1A answer from Alex next time. I was hoping this was going to be the place we argued more, Cody. I was ready for you to like really double down on, <laughs> on psychological safety. Do you want me? Uh, I, can re- I can re-record that bit if you want. <laughs> I can do no, the opposite. No, no, no. I, I appreciate your injection of some nuance. Pete, when you, you sent this question over, I was excited to see this because uh, I just don't believe in this right now. Um, and I think a lot of it is an extension of what's happened for a lot of terms in psychology, like Cody's mentioning, right? You know, growth mindset becomes like the the end all be all of what everyone needs to work on and mindfulness is gonna save us all. And like to a degree there's, there's value in it and then it just becomes like way overdone. And I think that's what we've seen. And, and I actually think high performing teams need a bit of tension that it's not necessarily like safety that they need um, in the sense that it's never going to feel uncomfortable or we're going to be okay if we fail. I mean, the reality is like there are real consequences to failure at the highest levels of sport. And so 
everyone is going to be a little bit afraid of that. And you're not going to get rid of that because if you fail repeatedly, you lose your job. If you fail repeatedly, you get a pay cut. If you fail repeatedly, you might not be able to take care of your family. Mm -hmm. And so to sort of imagine that we could just erase that by creating this great sense where everyone can talk about failing, I think is, is a bit misguided. Um, and it's not to say that the concept isn't important or that we shouldn't try to create a space where people can share more openly with each other. I mean, I think that interpersonal part of this and the interpersonal risk-taking has value, but the idea that, you know, it's, it's always okay to fail is just not true. Um, and it's not helpful for people to believe, I don't think at the highest level, it doesn't mean that, you know, you should take failure and like run, you know, to the edge with it. Right. It just means that there are, I think we've often tried to find ways to make failure less painful and to make failure more acceptable. And I think there's value in a group experiencing failure together and sitting with some of the pain and not necessarily feeling like totally safe in those spaces to sort of drive more adaptive behavior in the future. The other part of this that I think is interesting is like, I do think you need, maybe it's still psychological safety in its own way, but to go back to Cody's prickly players, right? You do need someone who is gonna create a little bit of like interpersonal ruffling of the feathers, I think. Um, if you have too much psychological safety, what you get is a bunch of people also afraid to speak up because they're more focused on not hurting than they are on the ultimate objective of the team. And so I think it maybe requires a bit of like tension between both creating an environment where people are willing to speak up and also letting people know that, you know, there are still real stakes on the line here and that it's not all uh, rainbows and butterflies if we fail. And that's why that's why sport is so interesting is because we do have that time limitation right like it's the the one thing in sport that doesn't get enough discussion around it is that to alex's point is we have a result and those results are meaningful but also we have a game in alex's world right now every second or third day and yeah. there's another game coming and so the learning needs to be fast and like you have to show the learning you know and so some of the environments that psych safety gets measured in don't have that repetitious time restriction um that we have to deal with and that's why i think yeah we've, we've seen a little bit of a, a struggle with its kind of implementation more broadly but yeah the, the core underlying ideas are, are solid but I, I think yeah those can also be created through you know a good sense of belonging within a team because it does need that to alex's point there needs to be a bit of uh uh, ruffled, ruffled feathers. Yeah, I, th I think those those misconceptions about lots of these concepts, like you say, can be really harmful. So one of the things that I've heard that you've, you've kind of spoken to is this idea that a psychologically safe environment is one where we can just screw up and there's no consequences. Well, it's elite sport. Of course you can't screw up and there's no consequences. That, that's not how this works. Um, but, you know, speaking to the, the, the benefits of an environment where people can feel challenged, and it's, it's the interpersonal risk, it's the interpersonal that's the, the kind of key here. Like, what, what are the real benefits of an environment like that? What, what does it allow a team to do differently? To me, I think the, the most important piece of that is it allows a team freedom to be honest. And I think in a lot of team environments, even at the highest levels, there is still a fear of being honest. And I think, you know, at least in Western culture, we're kind of like conditioned to 
first worry about how other people will receive the feedback, which often leads us to cushion the blow or say things in ways that are not maximally useful or accurate. And so I think if you've created an environment where you have some interpersonal risk taking, honesty and service of helping someone gets better becomes a much higher priority than just making sure everyone feels comfortable, uh, which is what less psychologically safe environments ironically would probably have, right? Is the sense that we should all just sort of make sure everyone feels okay, but we're not actually going to, you know, do the hard things together or say the tough things together. So I think that's valuable. I think Cody raised some good examples around, you know, players speaking up and, and addressing things that they don't know. And I saw the sort of twist on that I would add is, you know, this level of interpersonal risk taking, I think allows for people as a team to take more constructive risks together. So maybe it's, you know, try something new or improvise or go off script in a critical moment where the team has this degree of trust in one another that's pretty important. And that goes both between team members, but also between the team and the head coach. That I think if you can have, you know, a real conversation about that and have that interpersonal sense of um, support and like, you've got me, um, if I do this, I think is where that dimension adds a ton of value. Yeah. If anyone's interested in what this can look like, I'd actually point you to my sport, uh, AFL in Australia, where, geez, 20 years ago now, the Sydney Swans uh, were really looking to reinvent themselves. They'd had 75 years of mediocrity, hadn't won, and they took a counterintuitive approach at the time and not looking at, at just outcomes. They really went and, and digged into their, their, their history of the team and they created team behaviours and a vision and values for themselves, and then they started self-governing through that lens. And what it allowed for was the rookie to go up to the captain and say, I saw what you did there. And that's not like a, you know, that's not a, a team behavior that we agreed to when we all set out on this voyage together. Like that's not good enough. And that level of like interpersonal risk for a rookie to go up to a, a captain or a veteran and, and speak like that, um, all in the, the, in the mission of helping the team self-govern, develop trust, and like really go to the next level of team dynamics it has now become mainstream. They went and won their first championship. Now every team in the AFL, all 18 of them basically have exactly the same structure. Hmm. But it was that, that those core foundational ideas that we've been talking about around even taking some risks just when you've joined the team <laughs> yeah. and be able to, you know, say to the captain, you know, you, you left your jersey and your boots on the locker room floor and that's not what we stand for here. And it doesn't matter how long I've been here. It's my responsibility to pull you up on that. And it's in, it's not about you. It's in service of us uh, going where we want to go. And particularly in, in North American sport, that type of environment doesn't tend to, to exist because there's other dynamics that have evolved, but they can be achieved, uh, you know, with the right leadership and the right people, um, you know, kind of finding the, the right culture for the right team at the right time. Yeah. I mean, I, I can imagine maybe one or two raised eyebrows as that starts to get implemented, some, some teething issues perhaps. Um, the other thing as well is that the Australian rules football, I think Cody, you and I are going to have to have a sit down and chat at one point because it's the one sport in the world that I can watch where I have no idea what's happening. 
I've got zero idea what's going on. So maybe we can sit down and, and chat about that sometime. No, we need to, we need to, I'll do you one better. We need to go to Australia and I'll, I'll sit with you at a game. It's hard when you can only see X amount of the field. You can't That's see the, what yeah. half the players are doing. <laughs> exactly. Of course it doesn't make sense. Yeah. No idea what's happening. <laughs> Sign me up for the Australia trip, please. Um, let's, let's kind of switch, switch gears a little bit. I, I want to talk about maybe some of the, the, the challenges. And I guess we've spoken to this a little bit already, but what do you see in your experiences as the real challenges of, of just being in a team environment, perhaps from that, that leader perspective? Uh, Alex, I'll start with you on this one. I think the biggest challenge I've seen is that, you know, in the NBA, for example, by the time someone emerges as a leader, it could happen really early in their career or a little bit later, but most of them have really no experience leading anything before they get there. Right. And all of a sudden you're in charge of, you know, a group of 14 to 16 multi-million dollar athletes with their own egos and their own agendas and a head coach <laughs> who wants a specific thing. And you're right in the middle and your job is to make everyone work well together. And it's just very, very hard. It would be hard for anyone who's been, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company struggles with these exact same things. And so I think oftentimes there's just really a lack of knowledge about what it even means to lead and what the most effective leaders do. And so what you often find is these players who become leaders just lead like whoever led them, which may or may not have been effective and may or may not fit the current group that you have. So I think yeah. that's one challenge. And I think the second challenge I've seen is um, and, and heard from players about is really learning to tailor your leadership to the individual person on the team. If you think about like the, the research on transformational leadership, this would be that idea of individualized consideration, right? Recognizing that each member of the team that you're leading has different things that they need from you. And it's your job as a leader to extract what that is and figure out how to apply it and use it in a way that helps that person become the best that they can be. But again, that is very, very hard. It requires skills in building relationships. It requires a great degree of patience. It requires stepping outside yourself when you're playing 36 minutes every other night and you're trying to figure out how to connect with and lead the guy who may play 30 seconds to a minute and a half every fifth game who's scrapping to try to stay in the league. You know, it's just two incredibly different experiences to be having and someone has to bridge that gap. So on the player side, I think that that can be very challenging. And then on the head coach side, you know, what I've observed both in, in college and professional sports now is sort of the tension between um, being a colleague and being a coach, I think is an interesting one. Like, you know, how you feel like you're kind of part of the team and also leading the team and helping the team buy in. Um, and then I think accountability is a really hard one. I mean, we talk a lot about how important accountability is in sport, but again, I don't think people are really taught how to do that effectively. And I think it's actually very, speaking of interpersonal risk-taking, I think it's honestly very scary to hold people accountable. And in particular in the NBA, where you have a history of head coaches trying to hold players accountable, and then the head coach is suddenly no longer employed and the players around for five more years. 
Mm. It's not really creating an environment where the head coach is empowered to actually do the leadership and do the accountability holding in a way that would ultimately make the team successful. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting what you're saying there because there's that, you know, you're talking about that balance between team goals and individual goals a little bit earlier on. Uh, and you kind of come back to that again here. It, it's complicated in elite sport by the fact that, well, actually a lot of players' contracts and salaries are tied up with individual performances. So, you know, the challenge time, of managing that. Time is the element that we don't talk about enough. <laughs> the tenure of coaches, contracts, and uh, this is what I mean. Like there's so yeah. much about time that governs the the behaviors or the lack thereof. I would actually say, you know what, as Alex was talking there, I was trying to transcribe what he was saying because my answers for head coaches are exactly the same as what yeah. he just said. And this is one of the <laughs> one of the great ironies of, you know, when you start to do what I do and, and map the performance environment for head coaches, which hasn't been done, by the way, um, no one understands what they actually go through and puts them in an, an environment to succeed, um, including what Alex said first, the, the unknowns of the role itself, the, the pathway that we've built for most head coaches in most sports is to just be an assistant coach. So be high, high tech and tack and that's it. Mm -hmm. And then we go, oh, here are the keys to a multi-million, sometimes multi-billion dollar organization with 12 departments in the sporting area. Uh, you, whether directly or indirectly manage all of them and all the staff, um, and you're going to do all these other things as well. And we, we trust that all the assistant coaching that you've done is going to set you up for success. And I walk in on day one and <laughs> see what the actual calendar looks like. It's like, what, what is all mm -hmm. this? And I'm sorry, like observation doesn't help you. Like having 20 years of observing head coaches do the work is not the work. And so we need better pathways for people who want to go into a head coaching role because it's not setting them up for success currently. Uh, and so that would be the first one that, that I would look to, like the unknowns. Um, and then same, like the the individual uh, leadership that Alex talked about for the players is the same for coaches and being able to have a multitude of players from a multitude of backgrounds come to you and looking for different things. One of the big challenges now is global playing rosters and that changes everything, particularly when you're the ultimate leader. Like if you think about just how different cultures either revere or uh, can address or can't address uh, uh, someone who's more senior than them, those, those uh, cultural elements come with that human being into your team. And so it's not always easy for people from, let's say, uh, Asian cultures or Polynesian cultures to speak up to a leader because their, 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 so their social background, their cultural background says that that's not... That's not how we operate. And so then you've got someone who maybe has never interacted with that cultural group before, bringing in a player from that cultural group and trying to, um, uh, you know, coach them and lead them in a particular way that's really only a structure built probably from Western uh, 
backgrounds, right? And in coaching, it's mostly militaristic background. And so those things are a little bit disjointed at the moment as well. And then, yeah, we talked about, I mean, the tenure statistics are horrifying. Uh, again, time yeah. is, the, is one of the biggest challenges. I think the, the last stats to come out of the LMA was the, the championship, the average tenure is 0.8 years. Yeah. Come on, man. I think it's something like if you've, if you've been, if you've coached 500 games, you've been sacked eight times or something like that. Yeah. Something oh. ridiculous. <laughs> Who'd yeah. be a coach? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and uh, so there's, there's two dynamics at play there is one, my role is to set you up for that. So let, we can use that as a framework yeah. of, all right, well, if you're going to get fired in 0.8 years, what can we do to give you the best opportunity to get the 0.9th part but then also you've also got to build out the the three to five year plan because that has to become the vision you still have to have a long-term vision even though you you might be on a suicide mission and so now you're you're talking about yeah essentially having two plans for a coach walking into any new role and by the way you know, I just, uh, I mean, we're talking about teamwork, right? Like one of the best predictors of good teamwork is just time. It's time together, right? And so if, you're, if your head coach is changing every less than one year, and, it, and you see this all the time, I think it was recently in the NBA, it was like Kevin Durant played for three head coaches in under 365 days or something. Like how, and I know he's one of the best players of all time, but how is this guy supposed to actually be a good leader, a good teammate in that circumstance? It's just impossible. And I think he, by the way, did the best he absolutely could. But, you know, I don't know. I wasn't around him. But I, I'm just imagining as a world-class athlete, he's figured that out. But still, it's, it's absurd. So this is the 80% Mental Podcast. And I'm having a fascinating conversation on all things team and leadership with Alex Auerbach and Cody Royal. Um, guys, I, uh, I, I want to take a little bit of a break here. And one of the things that I'm, I'm doing on this series of the podcast is trying to get to know our guests a little bit better. And I've, I've got a little bit of a game to play with you. If you're up for it, that is. Let's do it. Is this a psychologically safe podcast? Are we? <laughs> it's a psychologically safe podcast. Absolutely. There's no, there's no wrong answers here. So basically I've got, uh, some, some sets of questions here. Uh, I've got four sets of questions, uh, but deep and meaningful. Have you ever, either or, or the last time? And I've got four different envelopes, envelopes, envelopes. Um, and I want you to pick a number between one and four. You can agree between you on uh, on a number between one and four. One. We'll go for the, we'll go, for, yeah, one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't overcomplicate like you, it, you know? Yeah, it seemed like you agreed on that. Okay. So uh, number one is... Uh, either or. So All right. I've got so it's, it's qu- quick fire, mostly. Uh, quick fire questions. All right. So again, no right or wrong answers. Psychologically safe environment. All right. No, no. Uh, bit, of, bit of prickliness, risk. though. A little bit. Of <laughs> a bit of prickliness. <laughs> All right. Uh, start off nice and easy. First one. Um, Alex, Superman or Batman? Superman. Cody? Superman. Oh, really? He's actually, we'll got, power. He's actually got powers. 
Yeah, I mean, Batman's just a true. dude. Yeah, yeah, an absolute sociopath. All right, um, <laughs> Peter, are you, are you taking? Are you taking Batman? Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, uh, did, that there's, kind no, there's of, no there's no wrong answers, but that's the wrong answer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> reluctantly accepting Batman. Yeah, I mean, it depends which Batman, I suppose. Michael Keaton Batman, maybe George Clooney Batman, no. Um, pen or pencil? Pencil. Pen. Yeah, okay, I just, um, I just got your... given a. I just got given a really good pen. It's a game yeah. changer. Like, what's, a, what's good you know, about it? Stupidly, oh, just the smoothness. The, like not a okay. not a biro. Like not bought from you know the store. Yeah, proper pen. Wow, a proper quality pen. Okay, game changer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. uh, would you rather travel alone or travel with friends? Friends alone. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like the I actually like the experience of traveling alone. I I do actually. I I like the experience of traveling alone. I I, I kind of enjoy just hanging out in airports and um. I, I, I went on a I flew to the the ASP conference recently in Florida, and now um, I got on a flight from from Manchester, and I've never had this before. The entire section of the plane was empty. There was me and one other person. I was like, this is this is awesome. You <laughs> never ever had out? that before. Yeah, oh, I, stre- I stretched out, got up, walked around, sat Move about eighteen rows. different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic. Had about eighteen record. movies on at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I get that. I do like traveling alone, actually. Um, okay, would you rather listen to a good album or read a good book, Cody? Book. Book. But 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 yeah, album close actually. So. I don't know if you saw this. I mean, don't complicate it. When I was no, no, no. But when I was when I was writing when I was writing Second Set of Eyes, I asked people to send me the best albums, and I mean like the best structured album. Like, there's actually okay. some artistry to like how the songs are put together in yeah, terms yeah. of like one, two, three, four, five. I got some good some good answers. So I was trying to listen to a good album whilst writing a book. So yeah, yeah, not book is first, but album. Would, is a close second. Okay, br- break from the format then. What is the one album you could listen to without skipping a track? Ooh. Oh. Um, this goes back to my my kind of adolescence, I guess, but Wolf Mother, I don't know if you remember them, Australian rock band. They, <laughs> their, their self-titled album. Wow. Okay. That's a artifact right there. I love it. Uh, <laughs> I... I uh, yeah, I would also be book, but I I must say like my my uh, partner has really changed my appreciation of music. So right now we're on a Taylor Taylor Swift world tour for the last you know year, just like everybody else in the in the world. Um, and you could at least like come to appreciate you know the incredible artistry that goes into like a really well crafted album. I think there's something like elite and excellent when you see an artist put something like that together. Yeah. So the first album I think I listened to from start to finish with the intention of listening to it as a story less than listening to it as just like a podcast or, you know, Spotify, like playlist, you know, I'm like one of those guys, my, my wife always makes fun of me, but like, I just skip around. She's like, no, you have to, you have to listen in order. Like the whole point is to listen in order. They've done oh, this yeah, intentionally. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, nah, you know, I just listen. <laughs> like, um, but then that, that changed with um, Kendrick Lamar's Pulitzer prize winning album. Like, I think if you listen to that start to finish, you hear a really, neat um painful but interesting story awesome i'm glad we deviated from the uh from the format there. from interesting answers okay um lions or monkeys 
what's the meaning behind this? Is this like a projective? Is there something <laughs> deep? I don't, deep I don't know. I, I didn't write Seems like we're, are we going to get a report after this and like high, <laughs> high green, high red, like, you know, this is how we're getting scored as guests, Cody, right here. Uh, I'll pick uh, my, my son would pick the monkey. So I'll, pick okay. the monkey. I'll, I'll go lion. Cause my daughter would pick the lion breakfast for dinner or dinner for breakfast. Oh, this is, feels like such an easy one. Sorry to go out of order here, but it's always breakfast. It's breakfast for dinner. It's breakfast for lunch. It's breakfast for breakfast. This is like, it's always <laughs> breakfast. Always. You can, I think there's nothing in the world that compares with a world-class breakfast meal. Would you yeah. agree? Are, are, you fam- are you familiar with the, the full English breakfast? No, please so, educate me. <clears throat> so the full English breakfast is uh, sausage, bacon, beans, eggs, toast, uh what else is in english breakfast yeah hash browns um maybe some uh what's that what's that horrible stuff called it's made out of pig's blood i've gone blank pudding white pudding red pudding white pudding yeah white, white oh pudding. don't yeah yeah but it's basically like a huge meal that you have for breakfast i don't know that i would opt into that but a good you know good brunch spread you know something yeah. like that yeah you know eggs a little fruit a little toast be fine i could eat that all day all right. Cody, you're, you're pulling faces at this. I'm I'm breakfast. I, I would I would have the full English in a in a wrap like a burrito, breakfast burrito, oh, breakfast like, burrito. Give it, okay, give me breakfast twenty four seven. You guys come down to Tucson. We'll get you some good breakfast burritos. We'll take care of you. Okay. All right. Last one then. Pineapple on pizza or no pineapple on pizza? I basically exclusively eat Hawaiian pizza. So okay. Um, I mean, wow. yes. Um, I'm a no no pineapple on pizza guy for me. I don't have a good rationale for it though. It's just just a preference. Just just, just a rule. Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you for playing. I feel like I, I feel like I know you a little bit better now. Um, so thanks for playing the game that I still haven't thought of a name for. So this is the 80% Mental Podcast, and I'm here with Alex Auerbach and Cody Royal. Uh, if you are enjoying what you're listening to, don't forget you can subscribe at 80percentmental.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80percentmental. Uh, we're on threads as well, but I don't really use it, so don't bother going on there. Okay, so back to the back to the topic. We're talking about team and leadership. Just a couple more questions before we finish, really. What do you think about the idea that behind every great team is a great coach? We've talked about that a little bit already. We've sort of alluded to it, but you know, I'm trying to think of, of examples of great teams and, and, and great coaches. And, and I just wondered what your take on this was. I'll start with you, Cody. Behind every great team is a great coach. What do you think? I would somewhat disagree. Uh, only because I think there are just as many examples of the, the you know, the Bulls and the Warriors and all these kind of teams. I think for every one of those, there is probably uh, Spain, uh, World Cup, uh, Women's World Cup, um, right? And so, you know, uh, to win the Women's World Cup with essentially not listening to your coach and, and running your own team, um you know, is it's the, the, obviously the, the toughest competition to win. And so mm. uh, the part that I would disagree with, I guess, is every. 
I think there are certainly some some coaches who have won things where uh, they're either not up to it and the team are carrying themselves or, um, uh, yeah, but I, I, I still think it's most. Uh, most that are on some sort of long journey with the team certainly shape the the way particularly the players play together like we've been talking about teamwork and mm. that's that's what you hear all the the classic examples it's it's like ferguson teaching them to all play together and bringing through a group that like alex said had time together like class of 92 when they they didn't change the team very much and then you've got you know same with with the, the classic michael jordan story about do you want to win scoring titles or do you want to win championships and you know uh i think most have a great coach who is the right coach for that team at that time mm-hmm. uh and, and that's one of the nuances of coaching is that doesn't mean you're a great coach that means you're the a great coach for that team at that time yeah. you you may not be able to do a rebuild for instance just because you can win championships that might not be what you're uh, best at coaching wise um and so yeah uh i took that a bunch of different ways but yeah the every is what i would disagree with but i still think it's most sure i just want to follow up on that a little bit because i'm i'm, I'm sort of interested in the example that you gave there of the the, the Spanish women's team. Um, and I wonder if, if you've got any experience or if you've got any other examples of, you know, what, what are the, what does a team have to do in that circumstance? Like what, what makes them able to perform well when they're almost fighting against leadership as opposed to having leadership that, that really helps them to move forward. What, what are the differences? Well, I think it's some of what I described before, like they have a a team maturity where they're able to actually take on a lot of the the leadership and cultural elements. Mm. They can make the the tactics kind of work within whoever's out there. Um, You know, like some of the stories were, you know, that I I think they had their Ballon d'Or winner like on the bench um, because of some like political things. And that obviously wasn't what was best for the team. Again, I I don't know a lot of the in-depth detail about it. I'm just reading what was in the the newspaper, but, um, yeah, I think they, those types of teams who do take on, um, or having some sort of fight with the, the coach is they have those team maturity elements where, they actually understand themselves as a team and can self-govern without the um, intervention of really anyone else. And potentially the, the the disagreements with the staff or whether it's the governing body also galvanize a group at a level that doesn't get enough recognition in that it creates a, an us and them and a, a challenge that they maybe wouldn't have had if they were just kind of fighting against the other teams. They also had this internal dynamic that that helped spark something that, uh, yeah, maybe helped them achieve something that they wouldn't have otherwise as well. So whilst that would never be the recommendation to <laughs> to be in conflict with the governing body and the coach, um, yeah. you know, maybe it that created the thing conditions that brings- for success. Yeah, it can be this thing that brings brings the players together almost. Yeah. Um, Alex, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm listening. I'd be really curious what you both think. I mean, I'm listening to Cody talk, and I guess what jumps out to me is I don't know that 
behind every great team is a great head coach. Maybe for some of the same reasons Cody's laying out, but I do think um, maybe in the best teams, the head coaches actually give themselves over to the team versus asking the team to give themselves over to them. And I could see that that be maybe one of these things playing out in this team Cody's talking about where the coach doesn't sort of recognize, like ultimately the players are out there on the floor, field, whatever, executing. And there's nothing you can do, right? You can call a timeout. In soccer, there's really nothing you can do. There's no timeouts, right? The clock mm-hmm. just runs. You can, whatever you want, but as soon as the ball is in play, it's up to the players to execute. And I think the best coaches find ways to sort of make themselves of service to the team when they're executing rather than expecting the coaches or rather than expecting the players, excuse me, to execute exactly the way that the coach wants. And I wonder if like in this instance in Spain, for example, the players just realize like, look, there's actually nothing these people can do to sort of control this, right? Besides like pull funding or sort of implode the whole thing, which no one's gonna do because they wanna see their team compete. And so they've sort of taken control over and now you've got this like resistance point that ultimately, honestly, like the coach is never gonna win, I don't think. You know, almost every organization is gonna choose the roster of players that costs $500 million over the head coach that costs $2 million. It's a pretty easy choice. Um, and so I think, I, I wonder how much, I'd be curious what you both think. I wonder if that's like a dimension at, at play here, um, where if the coach can sort of like see themselves as part of the team and give control over to the players and use their knowledge and expertise to help the players make the most of their control, if that's when you get a really, really great team versus a great team comes about by a head coach leading a group exactly to the promised land. Yeah, one of the things that I do is, and it's actually a different avenue into it, but I implore my coaches to think of themselves as a participant in the team and in the game as opposed to separate from. And from my avenue, it's more so for their own performance and their own like conceptualization of what a coach is and the, again, mapping the performance environment that coaches actually go through is they have to think of themselves as a participant because they are, even Mm -hmm. if they're just, they can't intervene, like Alex said, and it's a, a football coach that can only kind of stalk the sidelines you are still in the game. There's still 60,000 people at Old Trafford, you know, screaming your name uh, positively or negatively. Um, (laughs) And so you are participating in that with them. And even though you're doing more, you know, high performance knowledge work as opposed to high performance athletic work, you are still in the cauldron with them. And so, yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that being one of the elements, Alex. And then, yeah, similarly with, I think, uh, you know, coaches who just come with a, the same game plan and don't adapt any of that game plan once they're hired to the p- types of players that they have. I think that's a, a big failure point as well, is that the idea that you don't even shift uh, tactically anything based on who's actually out there. I think that's a big miss. Yeah, there's a great great saying coach the players you have not the players you want right and and i think that that's like you know part and parcel of what it means to be excellent and i think that's what really great coaches do right is they they figure out who's individually on their team and how to get the most out of that group and especially at the highest level in sports in in both in epl and soccer but also in maybe it's a little different in epl but certainly in north america head coach has basically no roster control in 95% of the situations, right? And so to be great at that, you have to 
work with what you have. You can't fight it or swim against it or push against it too much. And I imagine in any sport, you kind of bump up against that limit everywhere. So, so what you've, what you've both inadvertently done there is you've, you've preempted my final question, which was what makes a, a great leader? And, you know, you, you've kind of spoken to a few different things, but let's be really reductive about this. Um, if you could, <laughs> I know, if you could boil it down to one thing, you know, in your experience with the coaches you've worked with, the teams you've worked with, is, th- is there something is there something that those great leaders, and I, I guess this can be coaches or kind of leaders amongst players as well, is there something that they have in common? Is there something that, that stands them apart from, from the rest? How long are you going to give us to think about this? <laughs> we have to answer. <laughs> if, we have to, if we have to be super reductive and get it down to one thing. I think both of us looked up then, so you can see how much we're thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Search, searching. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll preface my own answer with saying I'm not a fan of trait theory in leadership. No, me either. I'm just throwing the question out there because just yeah. to annoy you. So. Yeah, <laughs> the I'll actually, answer. I, I will, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll do you a solid. Um, Given, given the show, I like. I'm going to say I actually think they're they're psychologists. Um, I think if you look at whatever traits they they show through their leadership or however they set up their instruction and their culture, and I actually think they're they're pulling on uh, psychology whether they know it or not. And so that can be your kind of uh, hard lines, you know, old school 1970s, you know. Vince Lombardi kind of militaristic hmm. version of it, uh, or it can be your uh, let's lay down in a circle and meditate before the game, Phil Jackson style uh, psychological yeah. um, underpinning. And uh, again, it go it kind of ties together all of the things that we've been talking about here <laughs> throughout the whole show, right? Like um, setting up team environments that are. Um, you know, kind of on the edge and prepared to win and adapting your leadership to, to individuals and seeing yourself as, as part of that because you are, because you shape the behaviours of the people, particularly through the power dynamic that exists, but also uh, because they want to follow you. And mm. uh, like all of those are psychological principles. And it's not to say I don't think that we all need PhDs in it as coaches. I think you can have... Um, I think Suzanne Brown calls it like natural psychologists, um, people that kind of understand what they're doing through those lenses. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think the best ones that I see, they, they do understand and intentionally go about structuring their team and the activities within it with an underpinning um, in psychology, whether whether we agree that that's the best practice at the current day and up to date with the the immediate literature is beside the point. Yeah. Um, I, I think there is some real intention behind what they do, and they they do understand how that's going to shape behaviour. 
Can I steal Cody's answer? Like, is that is that fair? Can I just say the same thing? <laughs> I mean, I feel like you've had quite a while to think about it now. But honestly, yeah, I mean, you can steal because it was a great answer. So, yeah, it was a very good answer. I, I mean, part of stealing it is I just don't think I can come up with anything to compete with that. You know, yeah. and we've, we've got to have a little bit of that. So, I'll, maybe my way of competing is I'll give you two two answers that I'll try to go towards traits since Cody Cody was not willing to go there. Um, <laughs> I think I think one is recognizing that. It it's simultaneously both not about you at all and all about you. Um, and what I mean by that is recognizing that like you play as a leader, a really huge part in how the overall team functions, performs, and yet you also have to like give yourself over and sort of erase your own presence in service of the team. So kind of going back to that both individual goal and team goal, you have to have a bit of a, a mindset around how important you are and also the humility to recognize that like at certain points when especially in sports when it comes to performance you basically are at the mercy of the group that's on the field doing the execution and then the other thing i would say is um the best coaches i've been around have incredibly high standards um and it seems like really simplistic and you asked me to be reductionist so i think that's fair but um <laughs> you'd, you'd be surprised i think at just how lax some head coach standards are um, or just how unclear some standards are when coaches are trying to put a system into place. And so having high standards or high expectations and real clarity around that, I think does make for a really great leader and allows the team to execute well. Well, Alex, thank you. I appreciate you coming up with that answer. Um, no, guys, um, I, I think that is as, as good a place as any to to finish up for today. Um, and honestly, I, it's been a brilliant conversation. So I just want to thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Pete. Cody, always good to verbally spar with you for an hour, even if we didn't didn't disagree as much as Pete would have liked. <laughs> yeah, no, I think next time we should really set up some some proper disagreement. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. Just to see, um, just to see where we can go. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cody, I can't let you go without talking about your new book. Sure, yeah. Second I mean, partly set of because eyes. I contributed to it, you know. So <laughs> you did, and and I really appreciate that. And I have a copy to send you actually um, that I'll I'll mail when I'm in the UK next. Uh, yeah, second set of eyes is available on Amazon. It's really about the work that I've been doing for the last number of years, coaching coaches. So what? what is that, you know, really addresses a lot of the misconceptions that I still run into uh, around how does that work? Does that mean you're coaching the team? Do you, are you telling the coach what to do? Can you save my coach? What's the ROI on the coach having a leadership coach for themselves, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I've, I've lent on, uh, well, each chapter is based on a particular piece of research. And so, it's really underpinned by some great work that's being done around uh, leaders in you know, high performance knowledge work and the types of environments that they find themselves in and, and how we can set head coaches up for more success, I believe. Awesome. Well, what we'll do is we'll put a link to that in the episode description. So if people are interested in Cody's book, just go to the episode description, have a look. Uh, and like I said, there'll be a link there to uh, if you want to buy Cody's book. Uh, Alex, you got anything? Nor anything nearly You're as in the cool book as... too. Alex is well, in the it, book too. Alex is in the book too. So I, two I, two I, reasons to go and check out the episode description. I, I am in the book too, and I 
also want my my coffee, Cody. <laughs> I don't know, you know, next time you're in North America, since you're going to Australia tomorrow, you know, you you let me know. Um, you you work for Toronto. You come here. <laughs> so, <laughs> is, is this is this it? Is this the argument? And you were, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know not to trust Canada Post. <laughs> That's true. I do. I do know that, but this that takes us down a whole nother rabbit hole. No, yeah, yeah. I will. Um, yeah, I point people to uh, you know my newsletter. I I write a good bit. I'm nowhere near as talented as Cody on the writing front, but uh, my newsletter is called Perform. You can find it at perform.substack.com. I've written a good bit about teams and leadership and coaches. And Cody and I have had the opportunity to do some cool collaborating there too. And uh, now, now I guess it looks like me and you, Pete, we have to do some of that outside of Cody's book to really make it happen. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, um, what I'll do is I'll put links to all of your uh, social media profiles as well. So if people want to find out a little bit more about you or if people want to reach out to you, then uh, like I said, go to the episode description and you can uh, you can find these guys on, on social media. Um, so just once again, uh, Alex, thank you so much for, for coming on the show, taking the time. I know it's early in the morning where you are. So I appreciate you uh, getting up early and coming on the podcast. Appreciate you very much for having me. This was a ton of fun. And Cody, same to you. Thank you so much. I know you're flying to Australia tomorrow, so I really appreciate you taking time out to uh, to come and talk to us. Always love spending time with both of you. So thank you. All right. Well, this was the 80% Mental Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard, again, subscribe at 80percentmental.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can follow us on Twitter at EPM Podcast, on Instagram at 80percentmental leave us a message leave us a comment leave us a review even better um and we will see you next time we'll see you because it's a it's a podcast isn't it